0: The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States China Relations, www.ncuscr.org.
1: Three of America's outstanding experts on China. Really, there are no better than David Dollar, Chung Lee, and Ken Lieberthal. They are really what you would say the experts' expert. When we don't know something about Chinese foreign policy or governance, we call Ken Lieberthal. When we don't know something about China's internal politics, about leadership issues, we call Chun Li. And we don't know something about China's economy, we call David Dollar. So we have the three, three of the best people in the United States to come and talk to us today about the upcoming security and economic dialogue. We're gonna kick it off with Ken talking about the foreign policy, the security part of the S&ED, then Chung talking about the internal politics driving what is going on from the Chinese side in the S&ED, and then David talking about the E of the S&ED. But thank you all for being here, it's wonderful. And I should also say two of them are directors of the National Committee and all three are absolute stalwarts in their support of the National Committee. So Ken, let me turn it over
2: to you. Uh, Thank you very much, Steve. I want to add my uh, uh, support to Steve's uh, wonderful comments about Herb Hansel. I see David Hansel sitting over there. Uh, Herb uh, among many other things, uh, was a neighbor of mine in our building in Washington, D.C. So I would see him very frequently, and his passing was both uh, sudden and, uh, and, and deeply distressing. But thank God he passed unexpectedly and quietly in his sleep. So uh, I would that we all, when that moment <laughs> comes, have uh, that uh, uh, transition? Let me move to the S&ED. uh uh, just to highlight it, uh, it uh, in case you don't know, the SED will begin with a dinner on uh, next Monday night, the 22nd, full-day session on Tuesday, uh, half-day on Wednesday, uh, concluding is planned with an Oval Office meeting for the, you know, for the top people in it. Uh, there will be a press conference after that. Uh, at least a series of press statements, uh, and then uh, a lot of. Uh, during the course of this, of course, there were a lot of sub dialogues and ministerial level uh, participation from both sides. Uh, Secretary uh, Secretary Kerry and uh, State Councilor Yang Jiechi will lead the strategic track, and uh, uh, Secretary Liu and uh, Vice Premier Wang Yang will lead the economic and trade side of it. Uh, The strategic, and I'll address the strategic track here, the strategic track is going to take up a wide-ranging agenda, uh, most of which is an agenda on which U.S.-China cooperation has actually increased uh, over time. And it will be uh, looking to further that cooperation and flush it out more. That agenda will include nuclear proliferation, specifically Iran and North Korea. Uh, Counter-terrorism, where our cooperation is increasing and China is getting more involved in Afghanistan, but there are other dimensions to the cooperation too. Uh, Military-to-military relations, uh, which are expanding and deepening. Uh, Climate change and clean energy cooperation there is largely a matter of fleshing out and strengthening the accomplishments when the two presidents last had a summit meeting, which was in Beijing last November. Uh, And uh, doing so in preparation for uh, the Beijing, uh, I'm sorry, doing so in preparation uh, to and giving an added boost to the Paris Conference of Parties meeting uh, that will occur in December of this year. There will also be a special session on oceans, uh, not, that isn't maritime disputes, that's the development of the oceans, Uh, you know, problem plastic garbage of uh, fish depletion and all that kind of thing, but quite important development cooperation in third countries and so forth. There's a very wide-ranging set of issues overall. Uh, having said this, I think we need to see this s ed as uh, taking place in two broad contexts uh, that will shape uh, the perceived value of it with, at the highest levels of both governments. Um, one is that despite this cooperation and this significant array of <coughs> Uh, There's an important shift that is evident in mainstream American thinking. By that, I don't mean popular thinking. I mean officialdom, uh, scholarly community, specialists on China, and so forth, uh, about China, Uh, with growing concern, arguably distrust, about the bilateral, regional, and global long-term intentions of the PRC. Let me say that is a concern that is fully matched in Beijing about U.S. intentions. Uh, this is particularly worrisome from an American perspective uh, because it's at the beginning of a presidential election season where I typically call, when I discuss it with my wife when we get into our seriously silly season. Uh, but it's not a good narrative to be wrestling with uh, at the start of what will be a long and contentious uh, electoral uh, process. And then secondly, we have uh, a state visit by President Xi Jinping to Washington coming up in September, almost exactly three months after uh, the s This will be President Xi's first visit to Washington as president. Uh, the most important part of state visits is typically that they are action-forcing events. They, they force the top staffs on both sides to take up the issues that are the deepest and most difficult issues to try to be sure that they can come out in a better place so that the state visit ends up being a successful visit and uh, that's a very good thing because we now have that kind of meeting once a year between the US and China uh, this is ED's agenda and degree of success will be seen by both sides, I think, in this context as to whether it sets the agenda, sets in motion processes that uh, will increase the chances of a positive state visit, of a positive atmosphere for the state visit. Uh, Given that background, I think this SMED strategic draft should thus especially address the issues that have been contributing most and tilting perceptions on each side to a deeper distrust of long-term intentions. And the two issues that stand out in this regard clearly are cyber intrusions uh, and the South China Sea. Uh, So let me take up each of those just briefly. One, cyber issues are the source of enormous concern and, let me say, of enormous confusion in uh, in the discussion of them and reporting on them. Uh, The massive intrusion into sensitive personnel files at the Office of Personnel Management has produced calls for retaliatory actions against China. Uh, These intrusions evidently produced a loss of data that could do great harm to American security interests. This is not minor. Uh, But frankly, all countries use cyber espionage to steal uh, national secrets. No country will credibly give up that option. Certainly, the U.S. would not do so, and neither will Beijing. Uh, So, arguably, you should assume other sides will try to steal your information. The issue is whether you're protecting it sufficiently, and that's where the real breakdown occurred. Uh, Cyber intrusion, cyber espionage, therefore, espionage means simply to get that, is is in a very different category from using cyber means to sabotage power stations cause air traffic control to misdirect airplanes, to wipe out computer systems and their data, to sabotage manufacturing processes, and so forth. All of those, let me say, have been done by one country or another over the last five years. There are still other issues that are in between stealing secrets and engaging in sabotage by cyber means. For example, intrusions to map computer systems for later possible exploitation or planting cyber bombs into various servers that do, where those bombs do no harm unless conflict begins at which point you activate them and they do phenomenal harm. Right? Not clear where that stands in the espionage versus sabotage uh, spectrum. I raise all that to simply say that there are things that the U.S. and China should be able to agree on To have norms, at least peacetime norms, of mutual restraint and where we should be able to agree on procedures among technical people uh, for helping to determine whether something that occurs in peacetime is a violation of those norms. We have technical people that work together already and we should be able to increase that quite a bit. Uh, But it doesn't make sense to spend a lot of time venting over making accusations about getting hyperbolic about things that, frankly, both sides do and neither side, and no government would ever stop doing. So we need to sort that out uh, and uh, structure that kind of negotiation to get peacetime norms where the structure of the issue might permit that. I'll take just two more minutes. Uh, You have two more minutes. I do have, oh good, <laughs> Secondly, the South China Sea. Uh, this is too complex a situation to go into details in two minutes. Uh, as with the cyber arena, this is an issue that involves many players, unclear rules, and substantive disagreements even over terminology. Uh, but we na- may now be at a point, and I'll be happy to elaborate in Q&A if you wish. Uh, Let me just say, we may now be at a point where the SMED strategic track can take up a process to not only stabilize the current situation, but also to clarify the parameters where substantive progress can be made and create a shared understanding of what needs to be done to assure a successful state visit in September. In sum, the SMED strategic track will discuss a broad array array of topics the process highlighting a number of key areas where U.S.-China cooperation has grown uh, in counterterrorism, climate change, and clean energy cooperation, and so on and so forth, all very significant uh, issues. Uh, China, I think, especially wants the S&ED to create a good atmosphere for Xi Jinping's September visit to the United States. And as I've talked with uh, some Chinese officials, that is the term that keeps coming up, that this is what the s and really needs to accomplish. Uh, the U.S. should seek to assure that a good atmosphere includes putting the cyber and South China Sea issues onto a more constructive path. And the s <coughs> and with its high-level representation, uh, having the pertinent specialists and uh, people with uh, political responsibility in the room, provides an excellent opportunity to clarify the path uh, that can lead to that potential outcome. Thank you.
0: Well, following Ken to the podium is similar to figure skating immediately after Michelle Kwan. (laughs) <laughs> so it's very, diff- very difficult for me to have that uh, clarity and uh, persuasion. Uh, first I want to thank uh, Steve for giving the, our Brookings China team this wonderful opportunity to escape fu- uh, from the railway, to exchange views and ideas with this distinguished New York audience and also wonderful to see so many friends. I also want to say a few words about uh, Herb, especially from the perspective as a PRC-born board member of the National Committee. For me, Herb was a true gentleman who really personifies American values, respect for cultural diversity, fairness, inclusiveness, and openness. His dedication to constructive U.S.-China relations, as Steve said, will always be an inspiration for me, especially at this very perplexing time of the relationship. Now in my 10 minutes, I will focus on perplexing phenomena in China's domestic, political, and economic development. The topic is important not only because China's foreign policy and its uh, relationship with the United States are increasingly shaped by domestic factors, but also because a pessimistic view of China seems to be on the rapid rise in the United States. This pessimistic view, although it has some validity, is in a way too narrow-minded and short-sighted in my observation. If our view, I will mean the United States, if our view is distorted, our policy towards China will be problematic. Now this pessimist view is based on three widely shared perceptions. Let me briefly discuss each of these three perceptions and or misperceptions and explain why I believe that they are not thoughtfully grounded, despite some truth in them. The first perception is that Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign has gone wrong, because it has hurt the Chinese economy, become too excessive, and too much driven by factional politics. Now let me uh, share my criticism about this, this. Uh, this perception. Now, of course the anti-corruption may decrease the consumption in China, but as we know that what China needs is the middle class consumption, not the corruption-led consumption.
2: <laughs>
0: no country, no country's economic growth could be sustainable with this kind of scale and the scope of corruption, like what we now witness in China you know, over the past decade also. And, uh, too excessive? Not really. You know, look at the vice minister and vice governor levels of the elites who are caught in corruption cases. They are altogether probably 120. That was only 3% of the that level of leadership, 3%. This we consider the widespread phenomenon in corrupting China, it's still very small. And I studied uh, the Chinese Communist Party Central Committee extensively. Only 15 were caught. This is again, it's about less than 4% of that level of very important leadership. So you cannot say that's excessive considering the fact that it's a widely spread phenomenon. Was anti-corruption selective? Of course, it's selective, and uh, but it's for various reasons. Sometimes bad luck, sometimes notorious nature, sometimes related with factional politics. But factional politics is only partially uh, relevant, because look at the five major cases so far. Start with Wu Xilai, Liu Zhijun, the minister, minister railroad, then Xu Zaihou, Zhou Yongkang, and the Lingzhihua. Four of them, except Ling uh, Jihuan, really were Xi Jinping's political allies. They, were, they worked together as the same kind of same coalition under Jiang Zemin early on. So again, in terms of uh, factional parties, only partially or indirectly, you can say Xi Jinping, by doing so, consolidated his power upon his own people, that's true. But uh, again, so far he targeted is actually very, very careful. Not to be seen as in the le- <coughs> leadership as a purely driven by factional politics. Dangerous? Of course dangerous. This is why we call Xi Jinping's effort was very bold. Ultimately, he really saved the Chinese Communist Party uh, in the past two or three years since he became power, uh, a top leader. Now, we can say that uh, this also caused some inaction from the leadership. But this is only temporary. Uh, in the next wave of leadership change, will test that these uh, leaders do not want to do anything whether they can survive. And uh, they will be motivated, in my view. It's not a really, anti corruption is not really based on rule of law. Yes, true. But can we imagine a country can build a rule of law within a few years? It uh, took several centuries for British to establish a legal system. It took several decades for the United States to consolidate our legal system. So it's not really realistic. Chinese leaders admitted, Wang Ji san said repeatedly, yes, our anti-corruption was not based on law uh, 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 that much. We only deal with the symptom, not deal with the root cause. But by doing so, we buy time for us to deal with the root cause later on. So I think this is perfectly reasonable. The importance is the Chinese public support that anti-corruption campaign. Now, the second misperception or perception is that Chinese authorities have become absolutely conservative as it comes to civil society, NGOs, and foreign exchanges. Of course, there's some truism. It is true that the, the Chinese leadership really has a very tight control in media. There's a continuation of arrest of political dissonance on political uh, 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 reasons. It is also true that the second drop of NGOs, for uh, foreign NGO laws, and also the so-called China's national security law, really create a kind of fear, anxiety, confusion, disappointment, name it, you name it, all these terrible things for foreign communities. It is also true that uh, Xi Jinping's leadership is not famous for political reform at all. It's not on the agenda. When Xi Jinping became top leader, I immediately said this is a leadership uh, could be identified as economically liberal and politically conservative. Now, at least for now. But uh, in my view, all these kind of negativity things cannot last for long. And it's only temporary. And also, we should not. Missed the counter-evidence, which is also very interesting. Xi Jinping said, China should promote think as a national development strategy. Think tanks, as we know, <laughs> consists intellectuals should be thinkers. He also said, China should promote. International exchanges, the so-called people-to-people diplomacy. You, if you read the Chinese newspaper, there's a lot of discussion. Besides that, the economic strategy, Donald, also my Premier Liu Yang don't welcome talk about people-to-people exchanges. Could you imagine that we will welcome the idea, people-to-people exchange? When you see China so close, want to kick out the foreign NGOs out of the country? No, this cannot be sustainable. Uh, and also. That uh, Xi Jinping three weeks ago made a very interesting s- statement. He said China should promote three kinds of people. One is a foreign educated returnees. And uh, this is not just a lip service. If you look at the, the recent appointment of the, the, the uh, uh, currency policy committee. Many of them are distinguished economists, returnees like Wang Yiping, like Fan Gang. They participate in national committees' work. They are excellent technocrats more well, well, than educated. If you look at the financial sector, foreign affairs, education dominated by this kind of attendees. The second group, he said, is the media people. This is also astonishing, you know, from, from Chinese perspective. The media is really under severe contributor. You want to promote media people. And finally, the private entrepreneurs, particularly young entrepreneurs, this is a very dynamic force. So we can see these kind of things is really contradictory to what we said or government claimed early on about NGO laws. So eventually, we one side have to win, in my view, based on my optimistic nature. I think the winner is very, very clear. It's on the right side of history. Now, but my really reservation is that we should look at a more balanced view, look at the future, not temporary. The question is whether Xi Jinping, if he becomes successful in the anti-corruption, in the market reform, whether we'll use that capital to promote China's much-needed political reform. This is a question, so far, we do not know. Now, is Xi Jinping flexible? Most of the people said no, he's very, very stubborn. No! Look at what happened just a few weeks ago. He invited the, la- the lady, the Gubernese opposition party leader, to visit China. And met with her a year ago. That name was banned in China. That tells you the remarkable flexibility, in my view, of Xi Jinping. It probably gave us some, some of the hope. Uh, finally, the third misperception or perception is that the market reform outlined in the third plenum cannot be implemented, and China is closing its doors to foreign firms. Now, it is true that uh, the China's favorable uh, economic policies for foreign companies come to an end. It is also true that uh, many foreign firms, especially IT firms, facing a very difficult business environment. And, uh, but on the other hand, you really look at China's economy, it's extremely dynamic in my view. State-owned enterprises reform really have some solid progress. To say the least, all the CEOs, their salary cut by you know, 75%, We cannot not that in Wall Street here. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, that's already happened. Private sec- sector, especially the service sector, education, public health, logistics, and uh, insurance, and uh, green consumption are picking up. The most important is the college graduate startup firms. Really catching up, going to the major cities, you will see that a fantastic phenomenon and uh, young college students. Now I also heard that the 30% of college students actually are doing stock market right now. You know, The stock market is booming in the past few weeks and uh, this reflects kind of optimism. Of course it's a danger, but my sense is probably will continue for a while because the Chinese government really wanted uh, use their policy to interfere. Now, but most importantly, there's some real important development like like urbanization, land reform. Chinese government designated 33 counties to do experiment in terms of land reform. Farmers can sell their land, lease their land, then really still promote the real long-term urbanization. Now, you can imagine that, uh, that experiment which should be concluded at the time of the seven, uh, 19th Party Congress in 2017, you can also see that all the plan, economic plan, with the private sector development, service sector development, Shanghai Free Trade Zone, financial liberalization, David will talk about, will by that time will have the con- conclusion that at least at the period that China Xi Jinping claim that tremendous achievements, plus that the 13th five-year plan which will adopt this fall in a few months heavily on China's global strategy. From November to October this year China will pay more attention on g 20s. These are all part of China's integration with foreign countries and especially private sector in terms of service sector United States has leveraged. This is the area we can benefit because our economy despite some tension still complement to each other. Now, let me go to my conclusion. What all these assessments, if it's right, what does I it mean? As it come to China's domestic political economic development, in my view, nothing is predetermined. Everything is subject to change. Change could be for better or for worse. That they, they depend on many factors, but one of them is how we, the United States, assess China's domestic development and respond to it accordingly. And a more balanced and foresighted understanding of China is essential for our policymakers in D.C. and also for our business communities. A contaminant policy is self-deceiving and only undermines our interests and our values. Thank you very much. <coughs>
3: to thank the National Committee for giving us this opportunity to uh, come to New York and speak to this distinguished group. I'm going to talk about the economic track of the strategic and economic dialogue, and I'd like to make four points. first one is very simple and short. Uh, As you listen to some of the things that my colleagues have said, and if you follow what's happening with maritime situation and cyber, clearly there's a chill in U.S.-China relations. So people often ask me, does this chill in relations, which primarily comes from security issues, does this spill over and affect the economic track? And I generally answer no. Economic track operates pretty independently of the strategic track. You know, we economists uh, seem able to uh, blind ourselves to many other things that are going on. So economic track is is organized, it's scheduled, it's going to go ahead uh, regardless of what's happening on the overall relationship. Now the second point I wanna make is about China's economy. So before I come to some of the specifics of the SED, I think what's happening in the China's economy is really an important foundation for the dialogue. What's happening in the US economy is important too. US economy is modestly accelerating and our Fed will be exiting from extraordinary monetary policy. Those, those are important factors, but I think you're more interested in China. What's happening in China is China's economy is slowing down now, some of this is quite natural as you reach middle income. Uh, demographics are changing. But the slowdown is actually quite acute. You know, Not long ago, China's economy was growing at about 11. It slowed down to 7, but even that's a little bit deceptive. You know, Domestic demand is growing significantly more slowly than that. Now, I think the fundamental problem is that in the recent years, China has relied very heavily on investment, Continuing to increase its investment rate, bringing that all the way up to 50% of GDP. At that investment rate, you double the capital stock in six years. So anyone who travels to China is aware of this extraordinary burst of construction. Uh, that's pushed the growth rate for a while, but the problem now is the economy is experiencing excess capacity in many, many different sectors. Real estate is the most obvious, where about one fifth of apartments are empty. Uh, manufacturing. Some of the important industries are producing at 50% of capacity utilization. Uh, and while as Americans, we often, I often feel somewhat embarrassed to fly into Chinese airports and, you know, see beautiful modern airports in cities I've never heard of. But then when you find out there are only three or four flights per day, you realize that this is in fact not necessarily a good economic investment. So I, I worry that some of the more recent Uh, Expressways, airports, etc., are are really not good economic investments. But clearly, there's overcapacity. The government's aware of this. And the investment rate is slowing down pretty dramatically. And investment's a big part of the economy. And so, this is pulling down GDP growth. Now, on the positive side, wages continue to rise. I think, for demographic reasons, the labor market continues to tighten, even though. You know, construction companies are in trouble, a lot of manufacturing is in trouble. Uh, it's impressive that the labor market remains tight. Wages continue to rise. Wages for migrant workers are rising at faster than ten percent per year. Uh, despite the crackdown on corruption, Chung was worried that the you know consumption was coming from the corrupt. <coughs> well Actually, consumption is growing very healthily in China. So, the, you know, crackdown on corruption certainly hasn't had any impact on the growth of consumption. But In my view china needs further economic reform in order to really mitigate downside risks (laughs) the risk that this economic growth rate would slow quite a bit further they need different types of reform they've got their third plan and document which is a nice blueprint for reform but in my view their performance in implementing it is quite mixed so there are definitely some very positive areas they're doing a lot on financial reform they're liberalizing interest rates, uh, they've made the exchange rate flexible, the IMF has you know, declared that the exchange rate is no longer undervalued, uh, so it's hard to see how that's gonna be much of an issue in the dialogue this year, you know, given the IMF uh, declaration. They've done a lot on deregulation in the sense of making it easier for new firms to start up, so there's been a big burst of uh, private sector startups, so a lot of positive things. But then some of the areas that I look at, I feel they're really not moving on reform. But one of the important areas of reform is, concerns the household registration system, the hukou system. You know, In order to continue to have urban labor force growth, you know, they need even more migration from the countryside to the cities. And to support consumption, it would help if whole families actually moved. And if the government put more money into health and education uh, supporting the, the next generation, Apparently the major cities are all resisting hukou reform, so there really doesn't seem to be much progress in, in the most productive cities, which is where there would be a lot of benefit from having more population. And then an important area for the United States, China has said it's gonna open up its service sectors, uh, but it's moving very slowly. Uh, if you look at, If you look at China, it's pretty open in the manufacturing sectors, open to both trade and foreign investment but it's pretty closed in services like financial services, telecom, media, logistics, plus energy outside of the service sector. So there's a whole range of important sectors that are very closed to foreign investment and trade, and in the future, China's going to need to rely more on those service sectors. So they're missing an opportunity uh, by keeping these sectors closed. Uh, I was in Beijing last week, and my reading of the situation is that the the incumbent state enterprises in those sectors I mentioned, you know, they really don't want to open up, and there's an ideological dis- dispute going on within the party, you know, do we really want to open up uh, and be part of an international economy in, in those areas, uh, which if you think about it, many of them are inherently sensitive, you know, financial services, media, uh, telecom, these are inherently sensitive areas. So I wanted to spend most of my time on that background, because then that brings me to the specifics of the economic track. And so my third point is kind of follows naturally from the second point is I wouldn't expect much in terms of economic outcomes at this meeting next week. You know, I don't see some of the key areas where the United States is concerned. Opening up the service sectors is a good example. Two sides have agreed to negotiate a bilateral investment treaty. They've just exchanged draft negative lists. I haven't seen any credible leaks but I'm pretty sure the Chinese list is a long negative list that signals that there'll be a difficult negotiation. So, so we're certainly not going to see any kind of announcement in the next week, except perhaps the two sides saying they remain committed to negotiating a bilateral investment treaty. That would require China to open up all of those sectors, except what's on a small negative list, and, and it looks like it's going to take a long time to, to negotiate that. Other important issues for the US, intellectual property rights protection, uh, the, the, the Chinese implementation of their anti-monopoly law. Many foreign companies feel that they're being picked on unfairly uh, and that there's arbitrariness in how that's implemented. This will all be discussed, uh, but I would be surprised if there were much in the way of economic outcomes because uh, I just don't see China moving that quickly in many of these reform areas. And then there's the important point that Ken made, uh, that even if we can make progress in some areas, it kind of makes sense to wait and announce those in September. So even if there were some good agreements, probably we would hold off until September. Uh, But I'll be surprised if in September, uh, if we have any really uh, bold economic progress. Now, the last point, very briefly, that third point may have seemed somewhat negative because I just... You don't think we're going to be surprised with any important economic outcomes either next week or in September. Uh, but my last point is that having sat through five S&EDs, my own experience is that the strategic discussion of the global economy is actually the most important part of the meeting. And Wang Yang wants to beef that up this year. And, you know, I, Guessing he'll partly at least get his way. So, if you look around the world, we've got the potential default of Greece and perhaps Greece exiting from the euro. Um, we have the exit of the Fed from extraordinary monetary policy. That's going to affect capital flows, that's going to affect emerging markets. So, I think people often don't appreciate that an important part of the dialogue is to talk about those global issues. And if China and the United States can have a common view, For example about greece then you're more likely to get coordinated action if we need coordinated action if we have some kind of disruption in the international economy uh we're more likely to have coordinated action from the us and china if these technocrats have had a you know a thorough bidding of the issue so i always felt that the the general discussion of the macro situation was the most useful thing uh though the american press tends to focus on the economic outcomes uh, I hope I'm wrong and that I'm pleasantly surprised by some impressive economic outcomes, uh, but I, uh, I, I feel that in the current environment, uh, you know, for economic reasons, I just, I just don't expect that we're going to see a lot of progress. Thank you very much.